It is said that Mao Zedong, leader of China's Long March and one of the great butchers of the 20th century, when asked to opine on the effects of the French Revolution, said it's too soon to tell. This is taken to be a great demonstration of the kind of long-term strategic thinking that is the secret to China's 4,000 year success at civilization. The Chinese gave us those things that make the world go round, paper, printing, gunpowder, and explains why they are such a formidable economic and political competitor. Unfortunately, it wasn't Mao who said that, but Chouen Lai, the premier of China who followed Mao after the Second World War, and he wasn't talking about 1789, but about the Paris student uprising of 1968, which took place while he was in office. It's a good story though, and it gives us an opportunity to think about the point of telling stories and their role, not only for the teller, but for the hearer. Humans have long been a storytelling species. We all have volumes of stories in our heads about ourselves and about everybody around us. They're how we try to get some ground under our feet and bring some predictability to our encounters. They are both armor and disguise. They allow us to manage the way other people see us, we hope. But to paraphrase an anonymous source on the internet, we think we tell stories, but stories often tell us. Tell us whom to love, when to hate, where and how to see and be seen. Often stories saddle us, ride us, whip us onward, and, we, and they tell us what to do and we do it without questioning. That's why the apocryphal Chinese reluctance to tell a story prematurely itself makes such a compelling story. Stories are convenient shortcuts for the teller and the listener. They are mental stage sets that set up the central character in each of our lives and tell us what to think, how to act, how to make decisions in tight spots and unfamiliar circumstances. And most important, how to maximize the likes we get, either online or in person. For instance, we land on a strange beach we think is India, although it's 7,000 miles in the other direction. And we see a bunch of strangely dressed people with dark skin speaking a language we can't understand. And the story is they're unredeemed savages fit only to be enslaved or killed because the land and resources on which they're standing are so rich, God obviously meant them to belong to us. And it takes more than half a millennium before we finally elected 20 Native Americans to Congress in our entire history. And the first woman just two months ago. Stories function on this kind of macro scale with horrific results. The story Putin is trying to convince us all of, not very successfully so far, about the relative relationship between Russia and Ukraine is only the latest hideous chapter. Stories on that scale are pretty easy to identify, at least some of them, especially if they happen in another country. But stories function close to home, across the whole spectrum of our existence, on smaller and smaller scales for states, neighborhoods, workplaces, college campuses, high schools, 
families and individuals. And the closer they get to us as individuals, the harder they are to recognize. Few of us are as obvious as Colonel Cathcart, the character in Catch-22, Joseph Heller's novel about World War II. Colonel Cathcart wants to be promoted to general. And everything he does is consciously geared toward making that story come true. So he sits down every night to go over his day and assign every occurrence into one of two categories. Everything is either a feather in his cap or a black eye. And sometimes he realizes that something he thought was a feather is actually going to be a black eye because someone else is going to misinterpret it and tell the wrong story about it. Cathcart is the commander of an Army Air Force bomber squadron in Italy. These bombing missions are extraordinarily dangerous and his men are supposed to get to go home after they make a certain number successfully. But the major way Cathcart tries to ensure he'll get his promotion is by continually raising the number of required missions so that as soon as one of his men makes it to the goal alive and is ready to get out of there, he has to go back out and fly some more. Cathcart plays with his men's lives in order to enhance his own story. You might think that's an extreme example for the purposes of satire, but a couple of weeks ago, that sentence was in the news. Only it wasn't about Colonel Cathcart. You probably recall the two chartered planes full of people from Venezuela flown to Martha's Vineyard as a surprise from the governor of Florida. The article said, Governor DeSantis plays with people's lives for his own purposes, which shows that no matter how good a writer you are, you can't outdo life. We may not have the wherewithal to charter planes, but the point for us is that when our lives are devoted to telling stories to ourselves and everybody else, when we feel compelled to stage manage our encounters, when we decide ahead of time that we know what the best outcome is going to be, when life is a never-ending job interview, not only can we get ourselves and everybody around us into a peck of trouble, we can't rec recognize, let alone grasp, the real opportunities that do come along, nor withstand the inevitable blows that knock us sideways. Like Governor DeSantis, we expend a great deal of energy and we're not doing our best work. It takes courage to stop telling yourself stories and be the person you are. To shed all the fluff with which we surround ourselves and reach what T.S. Eliot in his great poem, Four Quartets, calls a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Because that's the great fear, isn't it? I can't uncover myself. I can't afford to give up everything. What would be left of me? Well, our UU theme for October is courage, so perhaps we could try it. At the end of 2019, just before the pandemic, I came into this church for the first time. My husband's Parkinson's disease had gotten so bad, he'd had to go to assisted living and I knew he'd never come out again. We just had our 50th anniversary, he in his new place and I in my now empty house. I was retired, so I had no job and no more profession. I'd gone through the sobering realization that the resume I'd worked to build my whole adult life 
didn't matter anymore because I'd never need to use it again. I sat in the back pew alone, surrounded by strangers without a single story to let people know what to think of me. I wasn't a daughter, I wasn't a wife, I wasn't a librarian, I didn't even have a name tag yet. And what did I find? Kindness, generosity, friendship, good cheer, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. I struggle to stop the stories and be who I am, but you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to tell myself that my world has ended and I've had a raw deal. The writer Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking, is about the year following her husband's sudden death at the dinner table at the age of 71 after 39 years of marriage. A couple of days afterwards, she wrote, life changes fast, life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. Some months later, she asked herself, why did I remain so unable to accept the fact that he had died? Was it because I was failing to understand it as something that had happened to him? Was it because I was still understanding it as something that had happened to me? Our stories are tied more or less to the stories of everybody around us, but I haven't had a raw deal. I'm not homeless in a shelter, in a, in a cellar in Zaporizhia. I'm not selling my children to put food on the table. My six-year-old boy wasn't shot at school. My son's body didn't lie on the street for hours after the police killed him. Those are all things that have happened to people. And it's imperative that I understand what other people are going through, not to compare misfortunes, but to get a grip on my part of the life of this planet, to see not only what I've lost, but what I have and how I can use it. And to remember that I haven't had a raw deal, I've had life. I think there is a way to try to get at stopping the stories. The American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron has a book, When Things Fall Apart. In it, she writes, the power of patience is that it's the antidote to anger. That stopped me the first time I read it. I thought the antidote to anger was to be nice, to stop having mean thoughts, to swallow the hurt. But Pema goes on, by patience, we do not mean enduring, grin and bear it. And it's not just anger. In any situation, instead of reacting suddenly, we could stop. And in her wonderful imagery, we could chew it, smell it, look at it, and open ourselves to seeing what's there. The opposite of patience, she says, is aggression, the urge to push against your life. The journey of patience involves relaxing, opening to what's happening. There's another passage in which Pema says, when we get crossways with someone in any situation, large or small, don't act out. Don't repress, don't blame yourself, don't blame other people. I picture a circle sort of like a compass rose with four points, acting out, repressing, blaming myself, blaming the other person. But in the middle, there's a space where we can sit and be free of all those things. 
How do we find that space? It's uncharted territory and ways won't get us there. If we're not going to act out, rant or stew or plot revenge, but we're not gonna push the hurt away either, are we just gonna sit there and look at it? If I don't blame you for being such an idiot and I don't blame myself for screwing up yet again, whom do I blame? Do I just sit there not figuring out whose fault it is? Not getting the right story back on track? Just having that mystery can serve to get us to stop and wait and let patience start to work. We can take courage in this month of October and resolve to try to get to know this space. It begins with getting the courage to live with loose ends. There's an ancient set of Chinese poems known as the Tao Te Ching. Tao means the way or the path. You may know how it starts off. The, way, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. It also says that trying to understand something when you're in the middle of it is like straining to see through muddy water. Have the patience to wait, it tells us, until the mud settles. Then the water will be clear and you will be able to see to the bottom of things. So we can stop physically if we're walking, stand still. If we're standing, sit down. If we're talking, stop and take a breath, a silent internal breath. This is not sitting on a cushion for 30 minutes. This is five seconds. Stop, wait, let our mud settle. Give patience a chance to get started. So how do we remember to do this before we fly off the handle or try to bluff our way through a situation or give up in despair? The same way we get to Carnegie Hall, we practice. We practice when we're not in a jam so that when we're nervous, angry, frustrated, running late, frightened, the steps kick in. When we grasp the door handle of the car, we take a conscious breath. When we turn the doorknob to go back in the house, we take a conscious breath. When we become aware that we can hear a plane flying overhead or a mower start down the block, we take a conscious breath. Stop, wait, let our mud start to settle. And when we've done it once one day and forgotten to do it the other thousand times, we get up in the morning and do it again. And we can find innumerable examples of other lives to help us remember that here on earth, here in Loudoun County, this is possible. The great Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh of blessed memory said the Buddha didn't leave us a set of beliefs. He left us his life. And so did Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Mr. Rogers and Thich himself. And every single day we can hear the latest about the, in the life of Vladimir Zelensky, TV comedian, and think about that miracle. I'm betting every one of us here has got somebody whom no one else perhaps knows, but whom we can remember as a human being who lived life as it was handed to him. And the message of that example is not, you have to live up to me. The message is, the message is it's doable. It's doable. 
We see the examples of the lives that make the papers, but we're not all called to lead marches or go on television or face down invading hordes or hang on the cross. We're called to stop telling stories and to look at life as it comes to us honestly and kindly. We don't know from day to day what we'll be called to do, but figuring out the difference between our stories and reality, getting the courage to drop the stories and look directly at the reality is our life's work. And when that's making our heart pound and we're hyperventilating and at our wit's end, that's when patience is the antidote. Stop, wait, let your mud start to settle. We know that love is the spirit of this church and the quest for truth is its sacrament. To seek the truth in freedom, that's what we promise every Sunday. We did it less than an hour ago. And if in some situation we can get ourselves to stop and wait and let our mud settle, we will be nurturing and healing ourselves and from there, each other, and from there, our world. <laughs>